Today, I will be reading from John chapter 19, verses 38 through chapter 20, verses 18. When I'm finished, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. And in response, we'll say, thanks be to God, as a way of expressing thankfulness to God for revealing himself to us through his word. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was the disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out to the other with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have, yet, I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that, they, that he had said, these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for sending your son Jesus 
as a sacrificial lamb for our sins. Today on Easter, Lord, especially we thank you for the resurrection, that we have a risen king. Help us, Lord, to be grateful that through his resurrection, that he has given us new life and freedom. Open our ears, Lord, that we may hear your voice. Open our hearts that we may believe. And open our eyes, Lord, that we may see you. Be with Pastor Kyle as he speaks, Lord. Guide him. Help us to hear your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Donica. Please be seated. Good morning, church. Jesus is alive. Amen. Uh, my name is Kyle, and I'm one of the pastors here. If you're a guest, welcome to Living Stones. Uh, we love to go through the Bible, and so if you don't have a Bible, open, grab it, and open it up to John chapter 20 on page 906 in those Bibles we set around the room. And if you're somebody who'd, who would like to own a Bible but you don't have one, you can take one of those Bibles home as a gift with you. Now, if you're somebody who is visiting our church, you know, maybe you're, you're coming here and you're only here really because you, your mom said you're going to come to church with me on Easter. Um, it is good to have you here. I mean, and it's a good thing for you to honor your mama. So thank you for honoring your mama today. And we are going to dig right in. As a church, over this last week, we've been focusing on Jesus' uh, last week of his life and his earthly ministry, and uh, it's called Holy Week, and, we, and, and specifically, we've been looking at Jesus' words. So last Sunday, we look at the words that Jesus said as he was riding into Jerusalem and being proclaimed as king, and he was riding in on a donkey, so we looked at the words that he said from the donkey. On Friday, we talked about the words, the seven phrases that Jesus cried out as he hung there on the cross. And today, we're going to talk about the words that Jesus said in the resurrection in the garden. So today, we're going to be looking at the words from the garden, the garden of the resurrection. Now, gardens in the Bible uh, play a key role throughout the whole of the story of the Bible. Um, a garden in, in, in God's uh, way of thinking is a, a place of peace and life and joy and God's beauty and glory. I know that's probably not what you think when you think of your garden because it's filled with weeds and, you know, <laughs> my gardens, everything dies in my garden, you know. <laughs> but when God is the great gardener, and the Bible begins with a garden and it ends with a garden. And in the beginning, God put humanity in the garden. It was called the Garden of Eden. And it was a place of paradise, and they had everything they wanted, and God's presence was there. But quickly, they rebelled against God and didn't believe that God had his, uh, Adam and Eve's best interests in mind. And so they chose to trust in themselves instead of God, and they sinned against them. And because of that, they were cast out of the garden and into a life that is more like a desert, which is why life as humans is so difficult. And that's called the fall. So ever since that point in history, we've been living this life that's more like wandering through a desert. But the hope of the end of the Bible is that one day God is coming back and he's bringing a garden city. And that's the picture of what heaven is. Heaven is not a picture where we're sitting around, floating around like baby angels playing harps and diapers. Heaven is God's kingdom coming down and he's establishing a garden city. The question is, is how do we get from the desert to the garden city? And the answer comes from what happens in the garden of the resurrection, the garden in the middle of the story. And so that's what we're looking at today. And what we see is that the garden of the resurrection gives us hope. It gives us hope of what is to come 
in the garden city. And it gives us hope as we wander through this desert. So we're gonna look at four aspects of hope uh, from this story. First of all, we're gonna look at the hope of God that it is near even when we don't think it is. We're gonna look at the hope of God being personal. We're gonna look at the hope of God being triumphant. And then we're gonna look at how the fact that the hope of God will be shared because Easter is hope. So first of all, the hope of God is um, it's near. The story goes that Mary Magdalene and a few of the other ladies went to the place where Jesus was buried and he was buried in a garden tomb, in a rich man's tomb that was cut into the side of a hill. And they rolled a great stone in front of that tomb so that nobody could come and steal the body. And these ladies get to the tomb early in the morning before it's, before it's even light out and they realize that the stone has been pulled back and that Jesus' body is gone. And so Mary Magdalene run and gets the lead disciple. She gets the apostle Peter and, and she gets John and she says, they have taken away our Lord and we don't know where they have laid him. So John, who's writing this story and he calls himself the other disciple, and Peter get up and they run to the place of the tomb. And I just love how John throws in there twice that he beat Peter to the tomb. <laughs> you get the idea that Peter's a guy who likes to eat at buffets, you know, and John's like, and I beat him there. And so John gets to the tomb and he peers in and he sees that there's no body of Jesus, just the linen cloths that wrapped him. And then Peter gets there, out of breath, of course, and he stoops and he actually goes into the tomb and he sees the linen cloths that were around Jesus' body, but then he also sees Jesus' cloth that was over his face and it's folded up as if Jesus just woke up from the dead and he's like, yep, that was nice, and put it down. And John goes in after Peter and it says that after John goes in, he saw and believed. And so the two of them walk away thinking about these things in awe and wonder. But Mary Magdalene, who had followed them back to the tomb, stood outside, still devastated and weeping. And that's where we pick up in verse 11 of chapter 20. It says, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She was weeping. She was devastated. She was a mess. Anybody ever feel like that? And Mary, you, you got to see that Mary and Jesus, Jesus had a special place in Mary's heart. Because Mary, Luke tells us, had seven demons at one point in her past. She was very broken and troubled. But upon meeting Jesus, she was healed and restored. And so Jesus was her Lord. And she witnessed Jesus being captured and accused of a criminal, though, though he was innocent. And she, she watched him getting beaten and shamed and nailed to a cross. And she watched him die. And she's just devastated that her Lord is gone. It's almost like all of her hope has been taken away. But Jesus is about to show her that hope is nearer than she thinks. Look at verse 12. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Now before you're like, woman. I know in our culture when you call a lady woman, it's kind of demeaning. Woman. In this culture, when they said woman, it was a term of endearment. Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. You see, Mary still thought that Jesus was dead and somebody had just taken away the body, which 
By the way, like when I was in college, and I know some of your college professors are telling you, the resurrection isn't real. The Bible's just filled with a bunch of gullible people who thought that that actually could happen. No, Mary didn't even believe it. We're not dealing with gullible disciples here. Everybody knows that the resurrection is impossible apart from a work of God. And so, Mary doesn't even know, and she turns around, and then Jesus is standing there, but she doesn't even recognize Jesus. Hope is closer than we think. And Jesus says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Jesus approaches her in the midst of her devastation. He approaches her with some words of kindness and a question. And he asked her two questions, and, and these questions are words of God's grace. You see, grace is when God gives us what we don't deserve. And Mary in this moment is acting in unbelief. Jesus had told his disciples, I'm going to raise on the third day. But Mary is here weeping because she doesn't really believe it. And how does God approach her? He doesn't approach her scolding. He doesn't approach her being like, Mary, I told you that I would resurrect. What are you doing? You know, why are you weeping? That's not how he, he approaches her gently. And no doubt the apostle John, as he's penning this letter, is thinking about the Garden of Eden and how God approached Adam and Eve even after they sinned. How did he approach them? Not with a hammer, he approached them with a question. And here we see God doing the same thing. And we see that God's uh, presence is a presence of grace. And that God loves to draw near to us even when we don't deserve it. Hallelujah. He says, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? You see, these are also words of invitation, invitation to faith. Jesus wasn't asking these words because he didn't know. I mean, if you think about it, why are you weeping? That's kind of a silly question anyways. Everybody knows. And Jesus is God. He knows everything. He knows why she's weeping. But why is he asking? He's asking for her benefit, not his. He's asking because he wants Mary to ask herself that same question. Why am I weeping? Who am I seeking? He wants her to vocalize that she is there seeking Jesus. And if she's seeking Jesus, then she should be thinking, but he's supposed to be alive. Jesus is asking her this question because he's asking her, who are you trusting? Are you trusting your assumptions based on these circumstances or are you trusting the words of my promises? And Jesus is always faithful to fulfill his promises. So it's, a, it's an invitation to faith. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And then it's, an also, it's also an invitation of assurance. Now I want you to see this, that Jesus doesn't ask Mary why she's weeping until Mary sees the angels in the tomb. Now I'm gonna nerd out a little bit with you. You guys gotta come with me on this nerd nugget for me, okay? <laughs> John is asking us to think of something when, he's, when he describes it this way. You see, in the Old Testament, they built the temple. And in the middle of the temple, there was this place called the Holy of Holies. And inside of that was this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. And that was the, the place where God's presence dwelt. Inside of the Ark of the Covenant was the Ten Commandments, God's laws. Also, uh, some things that talk, the, the miracles of Moses and his staff. And also the, the bread of presence, which represented the presence of God. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant were these two cherubim angels, and um, once a year, the high priest of Israel would make a sacrifice and he would go in and he'd spread blood on that and he'd go in there in the holy fear of God and he would sit on top of that, which was called the mercy seat, and he would plead that God would have mercy on his people and forgive their sins. 
And so Mary looks into the empty tomb and what does she see? She sees a bench seat with an angel sitting on each side. And it's John trying to get us to think of this, that the resurrection and empty tomb is the new mercy seat of the new covenant. That because of Jesus' resurrection, it is God's final answer. I have had mercy on my people. Your sins are forgiven. You don't have to carry that guilt and that shame and that fear any longer. You can believe in me and be forgiven. Therefore, why are you weeping? That's why Jesus asked her, why are you weeping? After she saw that because anybody who knows that you have forgiveness with God Almighty, you might be beat up, pushed down, perplexed in this life, but you won't be destroyed. Christians should be the happiest people on the face of the planet, even in the midst of suffering, because we know that God has had mercy on us. Amen? It's also John saying to her that, you know, in the mercy seat, it's empty, God's not there. God is outside the tomb. You see, in the Ark of the Covenant, that was where God's presence was. Now God's presence is with his people. And so what this passage shows us, it shows us a couple things about God. Number one, that God is nearer than we think. And I know that many of us are in this room and we feel like God is light years away. Perhaps you feel like God has abandoned you. But this passage shows us clearly that God is often nearer than we think. And maybe what you need to be asking God is, God, you need to show me that you're near. The second thing it shows us is that God is not put off by our raw emotions. Like Mary's a mess, right? I mean, and we get it because we've been there. Mary's devastated. She's acting a little crazy. And God's not like, nah, nah, nah. I'm going to wait till you calm down and just like, once you calm down, then I'm going to come close. No, in the middle of her devastation, God Almighty draws near to her with grace. Isn't that wonderful? God is not afraid of your raw emotions. He draws near to us in the midst of them. And then if you think about it, Mary is freaking out because she doesn't know where Jesus is and she can't find his body. But it's God saying to her, it's okay because I know where you are and I'll find you. And that's the hope of the gospel. That sometimes we can't find God, but he finds us. Easter is hope. It's, it's also a personal hope. Look at what happens next. After Jesus says, whom are you seeking? Mary, supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Mary's still not getting it. <laughs> um, she thinks he's the gardener. And, you know, I, I love that this is in the Bible because like Mary's a hero of our faith and She's, you know, having a dull moment. And I have a lot of dull moments. So it gives me a lot of encouragement that, you know, you can be a disciple and not get it sometimes. And she supposes him to be the gardener. Now, here's the thing. It's partially true. Because God used to walk in the garden with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And John has already declared in his gospel that nobody has ever seen God. And so we ask the question, well, who was it walking in the cool of the day in the garden back in Eden? It was Jesus himself. And here Jesus is again walking with his people in the cool of the day. But she doesn't get it. And look how Jesus responds. He says, Mary. Just says her name. Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which means teacher. Just says her name. She doesn't get it until 
Jesus calls her by name. He calls her by name. Now, I wonder if it was like a gentle, like Mary, or if it was like, Mary, it's me. I don't know how he said it, but I do know that as soon as she heard God calling her name, she believed. And, 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 and picture this for a moment. She had seen the empty tomb. She had seen angels, but she didn't get it until God called her by name. And many of us sit in this room today and we say, you know what? I'll really believe if God gives me a miracle. I'll really believe if, if God shows me angels. I'll really believe if I can hear his voice. No, 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 no. Nobody believes unless they're called by name. And that's what we need to be asking God to do. Call us by name. And maybe God is calling you by name today. But what it shows us is that this God is a God who isn't, he doesn't just love the church in general, he also loves individuals. Many of us say, I know God loves us, you know, but he probably does, we think he probably doesn't really care about our day-to-day. No, God loves you and wants you as an individual. We say, I know God loves us, but we think more like, yeah, probably he really loves Mother Teresa and this person and that person and this saint and that saint. No, God loves you. It's a personal love. Now, that will never floor you and move you to worship if you have a proud heart. Which many of us do. We don't act like it, but we do. Because we're saying, of course God loves I mean, have you seen me? I'm pretty awesome. Well, maybe I'm not awesome, but I'm definitely not like my neighbor Bob. That guy's terrible. Of course God would know me. Well, if you think that you deserve to be known by God, you'll never be moved. It's only when you know how vile our hearts actually are that you're even amazed that God would call you by name. And if you have a small God, you won't be impressed that God calls you by name. If you have this idea of Jesus, like he's your buddy or he's your homeboy or he's just this good teacher who kind of will point you and gently guide you the way to live, you won't ever be impressed because you have a small God. But when you understand that Jesus is the CEO of the universe, and he's managing the asteroids in space so we don't get hit on earth and just all die. That he's holding us the perfect distance away from the sun. That he's feeding the little squirrels on top of the Himalayas that nobody will ever see. They're not there for humans' pleasure. They're there for his. That he's at the bottom of the Mariana Trench in the ocean, nosing every organism in the sea. And he's feeding the whales with those tiny little plankton. Like God is managing all of that. It's only when you see the greatness of God and then you hear him calling by name that you're actually moved. So church, are you moved by Jesus calling you by name? And if not, are you proud? Or do you have a small God? Because if we see him for who he is and we understand the messed up nature and twisted nature of our hearts, we will be moved to worship. And Mary responds by clinging to Jesus. This is the response of worship, to cling to Jesus. You know, that's all that Christianity really is, clinging to him, just responding in love towards him. She knows. And listen, I know that this is the deepest thing that you want in your heart. You say, you know, I want a new car. I want a new house. I need a new relationship. I, if I could just graduate this, with this degree and get this job, it'll make me happy. If I could just retire no, what you want more than anything is to know and be known by the God of the universe. 
And in the resurrection, we see that happening. We see it happening because hope is personal. The hope of God is also triumphant. Look at what Jesus tells Mary. He says in verse 17, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go and tell my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So Mary's like clinging on like a little two-year-old onto Jesus' legs, you know, and, and she's not letting him go. And Jesus says, okay, you got to let go of me right now because my mission's not done yet. I still have to ascend. And here comes the doctrine of Jesus' ascension. You see, Jesus didn't just need to resurrect. He also needed to physically ascend back up to heaven. He descended and he needed to ascend back. The resurrection was just the first step in his ascension. And so his ascension is important because it means a handful of things. It means four things. First of all, it means that his ascension back into heaven is Jesus' victory procession back to his rightful throne. You see, we don't understand this as Americans because we don't have a king. But in an ancient kingdom, when a king would have victory, he would ride in with a big parade. It was his procession. And the place that he was headed was to be sat on his throne. And crowds would follow him, and he'd be throwing gifts to his people. And so in Jesus' ascension, we see Jesus uh, ascending victoriously to his throne. And what's he gives us? He gives us the gifts of his Holy Spirit. He gives us the gifts of his Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is basically saying to Mary, you got to let go of my leg because I got to do my victory lap. I got to take my victory lap and I can't do it with you hanging on my leg. I got to ascend back up to the Father. The next thing we see about the ascension is that it shows us that Jesus conquered and has conquered death once and for all. And it's final. His victory is complete over death. Did you know that there's some other people who died in the Bible but God raised from the dead? Lazarus is one of them. A few weeks before Jesus died, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead after he'd been dead for four days. But guess what? Lazarus still had to die again. Like if I was one of Lazarus' friends, I would have been like, bro, you know you got to die again? Like that sucks. (laughs) You got to do that twice. But Jesus is saying, I still have to ascend because I'm not going to die again. And it's going to be my way to show heaven and earth, humanity, angels and demons and all that death has been conquered for good has been conquered for good. So when a Christian dies, they go to be with the Lord. And then when Jesus returns, all will be resurrected to new bodies that will never die again. Hallelujah. The next uh, reason why the ascension is important is because it's God restoring humanity back to God. Think about humanity fell from God in a garden. But then Jesus gets off of his throne and he comes down and on Thursday night, he's arrested in a garden as if he were the criminal. It should have been Adam and Eve who were led away like criminals. But instead, Jesus comes and stands in their place and our place and is led away. And then he's crucified. And after he's crucified, he's then placed in a garden tomb. And in the tomb, he resurrects. And then in the garden, He says, I'm ascending back up to the Father. So he's restoring what humanity has done to separate themselves from God. He's reconciling the two parties. And so Jesus needs to ascend back up to heaven because humans need to be back in the presence of God. So this is a physical and a spiritual resurrection and ascension. Now that's important because you'll hear about like the Norse god Thor who 
spiritually resurrected and spiritually went back up, but he didn't physically. It's only in Christianity that we have a God who physically goes back to the Father in heaven because he's mending what has been broken. Do you see what's happening? That's why it says here that he says, go proclaim that I'm going back to my father and your father. The Bible used to say that we were rebels, but now in Jesus, we're children. Wow. It's a mending of humanity. Yeah. And some people believe that what Jesus is referencing right here is, is something in the Old Testament that when a, 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 a human was sick and God healed them, they had to present themselves to the priest to show the priest that they've been healed. And some people are thinking that what Jesus is saying here is, I gotta go up to the Father right now to show them that I've healed humanity. And then the last thing of the ascension of why it's important is because the ascension is God's promise that he will one day come again. And so you can read about this in Acts chapter one. After 40 days, after he resurrected, Jesus ascended back up into heaven and all his disciples just kind of were looking like this. They just watched him go up. They were, they're just standing amazed. And angels show up and they say, why are you looking into the sky? And I'm like, well, because Jesus just ascended like a balloon into the heavens. Like, that's insane. <laughs> and the angels say to them, in the same way that you saw him go up, he will one day return. And so the ascension is also God's promise to us that he's coming back to fix this broken world. And as Sally Lloyd-Jones says, it's his promise to us that he's one day coming to make all the sad things untrue, both spiritually, emotionally, and physically. And that's the hope of the new garden city. So we hear a promise of the future garden here because hope is triumphant. Lastly, hope will be shared. Verse 18 says that Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples I have seen the Lord and that, she had, and that he had said these things to her. So Mary's response after seeing Jesus is she's like, I need to tell somebody about this good news. I have seen the Lord. Now what's interesting to me is Jesus tells Mary to go and share this news and that's Jesus' plan. I'm kind of like, hey, Jesus, if you want people to know you, why don't you just start popping up everywhere and start revealing yourself? But that's not God's primary plan of working. God's primary plan of spreading his glory is through witness. Yeah. And it's kind of cool if you think about it. Because it's cool that God would invite a bunch of unworthy witnesses into such an eternal story. I mean, think about Mary. If you were trying to write a legend, you wouldn't have chose Mary as your first witness. This woman who had seven demons who was very broken, whose life was a mess, you wouldn't have chosen her. This, and, and by the way, back then in, in the ancient Near East, women didn't even, you, you didn't hold up in court. Your testimony didn't matter in court. So you wouldn't have chosen a woman. But Jesus chooses her as the first witness to say, I use what the world deems foolish to shame, shame the wise. These are the people that I use to spread my glory. And it brings comfort to us because look around. We're just a bunch of messed up ragamuffins, you know? But it shows us that we can take part in God's great story. And it gives us purpose. And she goes and she says, she announces, I have seen the Lord. This is the announcement of the Christian. I have seen the Lord. Now, Notice that she saw him but didn't recognize him. So what is she saying when she says, I have seen? She's saying, I have understood the Lord. 
And anybody who understands the Lord and what he's done for you, you will announce to others, I have seen the Lord. And some of you are here and you're like, I'm tired of you guys telling me about Jesus. Well, you gotta understand. When you experience something so good that changes your life, you'll end up talking about it. If you had the cure to cancer, you would talk about it. And here we have the cure to something much, much greater, the cure to sin and death. And we're gonna talk about it. I have seen the Lord. Which means this, that if you're somebody who claims to be a Christian, but you never wanna talk about Jesus, you have to ask yourself the question, have I really understood the Lord? But maybe it's not as complicated as you think. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, go stand on the top of the temple and start shouting at people. And sometimes we think, we hear messages like this and we think, okay, I gotta go stand on the street and start shouting at people. I've seen the Lord and Jesus is alive. No, he just says, go back to the people you already have a relationship with. Go back to the disciples, tell them I've seen the Lord. And maybe that's all that God is asking you to do. And notice here that Mary just goes and does this one act of faithfulness and we're reading about it here in Sparks, Nevada today. <laughs> Wonder what she's thinking in heaven. Never, under, never underestimate the power that God could do in your life with one simple act of obedience. So when we present ourselves to God and we say, I have seen the Lord, the world changes and it restores our purpose. And you know what this means for us? It means this, your life really does have significance. It means your life really does matter. You're not just a robot who gets up, goes to work, eats, comes back, goes to sleep, gets up, goes to work, eats, comes back. Your life has a purpose and your purpose of your life is to live a life that proclaims, I have seen the Lord. And when you do that, God will draw all types of people to himself because hope will be shared. So do you see the hope? It's nearer than you think. It's personal, it's triumphant, and it will be shared when we take comfort in the fact that our Lord has resurrected. Amen, church? Let's pray. God, help us. Help us to know these truths. Help us to stare into your face, Jesus, and hear your words. Help us to be gladly proclaiming your name because there's nothing better than you in the face of the universe. Help us, Lord God, we pray. Amen.